In today's episode, we're going to learn about defiant hope, what it means to get up off your butt and actually do something, and what it's like to every day lean into uncomfortable conversations. Today, I'm joined by Rob Morris, the CEO of Love 146. Love 146 is a charity with a vision to end child trafficking. If you're uncomfortable with the topic, I understand if you need to skip onto the next episode. But to all listening, I encourage you to lean into the uncomfortable conversation. In all of our lives, we're faced with uncomfortable conversations, topics that might be difficult. And this is one that is of utmost importance for us all to lean into. I encourage you to go to love146.org to donate this month of June. They have a wellness challenge where they're challenging you and your organizations to commit yourself to a wellness challenge while doing so also help support this wonderful charity. Please welcome Rob Morris. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Hey, Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I think that um, earth shattering perspective checks are, are, are important every once in a while just to, you know, ground you. And in the business world, you, we use the phrases transformation. We use the, the, the word brave. But in the context of the challenges that you're trying to address, it, it quite honestly makes them seem pretty damn silly. And, you know, I'd love to explore what some of those words mean in, in your world. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be learned there. And the, the one I'd love to start with is, is defiant hope. And, and what does that mean? Sure. I mean, that's, that's one of our values as an organization. And, um, I think oftentimes with, you know, the, the issue that we deal with, which is the trafficking and exploitation of children, you know, people ask me often, you know, first, how do you keep your your head on straight when your head is buried in mm. some of the darkest stories imaginable day in and, and day out? But the reality is, I think, especially in the times that we're living in now, I think we're all sort of buried in stuff, right? We're, we're bombarded mm. 24-7 with bad news all the time. And so trying to figure out how do we keep our heads on straight and, and uh yeah, I think sometimes people will hear me hear me talk or, or whatever, and they say, "Oh man, I love your optimism," and I, and I sort of chuckle because I think I am not an optimist. If you knew me, I'm definitely not an optimist. Um, I've seen too much to actually be an optimist. I'm not anti-optimism at all. I, I I like being around optimists, but I'm not an optimist. And I think the danger of optimism sometimes, and not all the time, but I think sometimes optimism can get really close to the edge of denial, you know, where it's sort of mm. like, hey, things are bad, or this issue is bad, but everything's going to be okay, everything is going to work out. That is not who I am. I think hope is a little bit different in that I think optimism has a tendency to be passive, whereas hope has a tendency, I think, to be more active and aggressive. And so we sort of added the word defiant to it um, very purposely, because I think there is an, an element of defiance when it comes to hope, especially when it comes to the times that we're living in, and especially with what we deal with as an organization, a really hard, dark heart-wrenching human rights abuse. Um, there's a defiance when we say, hey, you know what? This is the reality. It's pretty harsh, but I insist that it can change and it can potentially change because of my action and me actually doing something about it. So there's, it's, it's active. And, and the, the word defiance, you know, unfortunately has a really bad rap. 
right? It's like, I, mm. I mean, if, you know, I tell people all the time that if I had a dollar for every time I heard the word defiant from, you know, growing up from school teachers or even my own parents, you know, you're such a just breaking the rules, oh, right? Yeah, totally, yeah. right? It's like that. It's it, but it's always this negative thing. But I think now with the work that I do and with where I'm at, even in life, that defiance is paying off in spades as I've attached it to hope. So, yeah. So in the midst of what looks like growing despair um, and darkness and growing cynicism in the world, I think pushing against that and insisting on another world and potentially being a part of bringing that, um, it's defiant hope. So yeah, that's kind of mm. about what, who we are. And, and the crazy thing is, George, is that I'm learning what defiant hope looks like um, from the children that we work with. Because for a lot of kids that have been through what kids have been through that are in our care, for them to wake up in the morning and to choose to live another day, that in and of itself is an act of defiant hope. So, um, yeah, so it, it infuses um, who we are as an organization. It's humbling to see those survivors. Did you did you start off as an optimist and, and then that transformed or has that always been your your point of view? It's a great question. I think it's developed like anything over over years. Right. And and so, you know, I think I think a good part of my life I spent trying to shield myself. And I think we all do instinctively shield ourselves from injustice and 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 the hard stuff and the heart wrenching stuff. I, I you know, I I think uh, there's a civil rights leader from way back by the name of W.E.B. Uh, du Bois, um, and he made this statement. He said, there is but one coward on earth, and that is the coward who dare not know. And there's, I think, mm. a part of all of us that when we hear something really hard or see something terrible, there's a part instinctively that we want to turn away. We want to look away. We want to bury our, our head in the sand. And I think a lot of our lives we spend trying to protect ourselves from the hard stuff and and um so I think as I've done that less and less and actually have choosen, chosen to more immerse myself into the pain of my neighbors, the defiant hope piece has sort of risen through that. So I don't think I've always understood what defiant hope looks like. I don't know if I was ever really an optimist, um, but uh, the defiant hope piece is the thing that's sort of defining and and really I'm digging more into and learning about uh, day in and day out. So. Yeah. And, and really leaning into those uncomfortable conversations, those uncomfortable situations. I mean, that that can be applied anywhere. Right. Is this because because if your optimism is cranked up to the point of just ignorance and, and obliviousness, then you're you're really not going to help anyone around you. Right. And th this is something that's always drawn me to your cause and, and that I always want to give it more of a voice is that it tends to be one of those things that not a lot of people are going to bring up at the dinner table. You know, you know, when they're out, it's just because it's going to instantly bring things down. You know, it's much easier to talk about, you know, cancer, you know, whatever insert, whatever other cause than, than this one. But, you know, this, it's such an important thing. And, you know, I'm curious, how have you navigated that? Like always being the guy that's got to, you know, bring up that uncomfortable conversation. It's a great question. I, I, I laughingly refer to myself often as the dinner guest from hell, right? Where it's just, like, <laughs> you know, people you haven't met before, or whatever, they hear you speak someplace, they take you out to dinner or, you know, you, you know, friends of friends take you, you know, you go out and, and somewhere along the line, people, you know, so what is it that you do, you know, or I'm on an airplane, right? You know, on a 15 hour flight and somewhere along that line, you're going to end up 
up having a conversation with somebody sitting next to you. And oftentimes it'll be the classic, you know, so, you know, are you going to the Philippines for business or pleasure? Are you going to Thailand for business or pleasure? Well, uh, you know, business, really, what is it that you do? And and it's just like, I could already feel like the, that, that question coming. And I used to be really afraid of that and feel like, oh man, am I just going to put up just a bucket of cold water on a conversation. But now I actually look at it as an opportunity to share extraordinary stories of extraordinary children, because it's not all horrific. It's not all dark. I mean, just like any of us, we do, our stories are not just one narrative, right? They're full of hope. They're full of despair. They're full of victories and triumphs and incredible flaws and failures and all of that. And so it's not, it's not all that. In fact, I, interestingly, I remember having somebody with me visiting one of our safe homes in the Philippines. And we spent the day there with the kids and we were playing games with them, having dance parties. I remember playing badminton. They absolutely crushed us in badminton, but it was just a Hmm. wonderful day playing with these kids. And at the end of the day, this, this friend of mine, she looks at me, she goes, I'm so confused. This was not what I was expecting to see. She goes, these are just like real children. And I was like, yeah, oh, that's because they are real children and real children laugh, real children cry. It's all of that. There's just not one one narrative that defines us. And obviously, none of us want to be defined by the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And so I try to share the big picture that it's not all dark and horror stories, though the horror stories are horrific. It's not all that. Yeah, because then then I feel like there'd be no hope, right? Because hope is that there's going to be there's there are some good things now and there's going to be more, more good moments. Right. And that's just going to turn into more and more. I'm curious when you you I travel or used to travel a lot for work. um, What is the general reaction? Do people lean back into the conversation or is it one of those moments where you tell them what you do and they're like, oh, and they just slip their headphones back (laughs) on and and stare out the window? You know, it's great. It's I, I find both. There are people who I mean, and we've seen, especially as you know, the issue of human trafficking, um, especially in recent years, has really become the human rights issue of our time. When we first started 20 years ago, not a lot of people knew what human trafficking was. And as soon as they mm. started hearing about it, it was that sort of like, oh, my gosh, that's just too There's It's too much. And, it, and I totally understand that. And I totally get that. But we've seen that change over the years. And obviously, you, you know, you you have to sort of read the room and, and, and get where a person is at. And there's there. And I actually have been really encouraged that more and more people are leaning in and oftentimes are like, how, how, what, how can I be involved? What can I do about it? And so, um, yeah. And so that's, that's been changing and it's, and it's encouraging. That's great. And then the other, the other word that I find interesting is transformation. You use it within, within this exploitation space. And in the business world, when I talk about transformation, I, I always say there's never an end, right? This, and it's always, it's, you're always retransforming and transforming. Now it kind of bums me out a little bit to think that that same concept would apply in the exploitation world, because I do want an end, but what does transformation mean for you? Yeah, I think I think first of all, I, applying it to recovery is is an interesting mm. thought. Like, what does transformation look like? Right. Um, one of my big um, aching questions when we first started doing this work, when I would hear about some of the things that happened to the children that we were bringing into our care, the big looming haunting question was, is recovery even possible? Is transformation coming from where this person is at right now with all they've experienced when it comes to trauma? 
is there a moving out of that? Is there a moving on from that? And and I've got to say, in 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 all the years that we've been doing this work, the the resounding answer to that question is absolutely. I've been able to see it. You know, I've seen the lives of little human beings absolutely um, transformed. And then the issue itself, when it comes to transformation, right? People are like, you know, wow. When you hear the statistics of how many people are being trafficked and exploited, do you think this is ever going to change? Because we have this really bold and audacious vision as an organization, which is the end of child trafficking and exploitation. And sometimes people will be like, don't you think that's a little naive or idealistic to think something like this is ever going to change or ever going uh, to end? And and I hate that defeatist mentality, right? Because it ignores, mm. first of all, history, right? Because people said the same thing to like a William Wilberforce when he was fighting against the transatlantic slave trade in, in, in Britain. You know, people said the same thing to an MLK, to, you know, and, and um, you can, and Mandela, you can go on and on, on on all of that. But I think, I don't think it's idealistic or naive. I, I think it's audacious. And at the end of the day, it's people of audacity that end up changing the world, right? So it's, so yeah, I think transformation is possible. So I look back and I have this privilege of being able to look at 20 years that we've been involved in this. And I see really good changes, right? What again, people didn't, you know, not a lot of people knew what it was. Now, most people know what it was. Um, legislation being passed over the last 20 years that are creating safer situations for children um, in every state has passed legislation in the last 20 years or so. And so we see these incremental movements toward a better uh, future. And so that's what we what we look at. And so yeah, I think I think transformation is absolutely possible. And we look even as an organization, George, of like the importance of evolving and as an organization, right, of, of continually transforming and changing um, as an organization, as our knowledge increases, we want to be more effective. And so we tweak, we change, you know, we do all of that. And part of that is having a posture of being learners, being curious, mm. um, you know, uh, being good listeners. God knows we need more listeners in the world right now than talkers because oh, everybody's yeah. talking, but not a lot of people are listening. But it's really key to transformation is being good listeners and uh, and having that posture of being forever learners. Totally agree. And I want to dig into, you know, how you motivate your team and, and, and how you, you keep them on mission. But before I do that, I'm realizing even now, like we're talking about this topic somewhat abstractly and I'd love to like lean into it. And if there's a story or two that really ground, you know, this, this problem that, that you're willing to share, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, even even ha how we started as an organization, it was because of encounter with the issue. You know, I know um, in Intivity has this sort of like ethos of human first, and I think oftentimes we can dehumanize human beings by putting them under categories that you know mm -hmm. that they fit under, right? And so we we have these categories like the homeless or the refugees, the poor or human traffic. When you put the in front of a group of people and you just lump everybody into that thing, after a while you can start to forget that we're talking about human beings here and not yeah. just an issue or a cause. And so for for me, you know, 20 years ago, you know, I was, you know, before we started Love 146, I was with a couple of friends. Uh, we connected. We, we were we were just hearing about this thing called child trafficking, wanted to see how we could be involved or do something about it. 
and we were we traveled um, with an organization uh, made up of criminal investigators who go in investigating these crimes against children um, into places where children are being exploited and sold like commodities. There was an investigation taking place in this particular city. They invited us in to go in with them. They basically pose as customers. They go in uh, with undercover surveillance equipment on. They gather evidence. They then bring that evidence to local law enforcement, and there's usually a recovery operation when there's enough evidence to warrant um, a successful prosecution in a place being shut down. And then hopefully these children are brought out of those situations and begin their long road of recovery. And, and I just oversimplified an incredibly complex process for the sake of time. Mm. But it was uh, that night in particular before we went in, you know, and, and honestly, George, it was the most disturbing experience of my life to pretend to be the very thing that everything in me is completely and utterly repulsed by. Right, going in posing as a customer, and we walked into this place. It was a brothel where children were were suspected of being sold. And sure enough, we walk in, we look, you know, and behind this glass, there are these children sitting in in chair chairs in rows, um, having even the dignity of a name stripped from them. They just had numbers pinned to their dresses. On this side of the glass, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with predators who were purchasing these kids for sex. And I remember right before we went in, the last thing this investigator said before we went in, he said, look, if you don't think you can do this, if you don't think you can hold it together with what you're about to see, do not come in because we can't risk you breaking character and destroying this investigation that had already been taking a while to complete. And we were like, no worries until we found ourselves standing in this room. And then everything in me was like trying to hold it together. And, um, yeah, it was an incredibly disturbing experience. And so, and on this side of the glass, the, these brothel workers were handing us these menus with the numbers of the children on them with their so-called specialty of what they could provide. And I remember the looks in the eyes of these kids. These kids were just like like motionless watching these children's cartoons on television sets on their side of the glass, waiting to literally be purchased and abused. And they all had that sort of motionless stare, except for one girl. She was the only one not looking at the children's cartoon. She was staring at us through the glass. And the look in her eyes, I don't know um, what I was seeing, whether it was fight, whether it was trauma, um, uh, you know, whether it was panic. You know, I hoped that it was defiance or whatever. But that look and that mm -hmm. stare, I will never forget, still haunts me even to this day. I will never forget her number. Her number is 146. You know, and so even when we named the organization once we started it or after we started it, we renamed it actually to remember the one, right? Mother Teresa said, if I didn't pick up the one off the streets of Calcutta, I never would have picked up the 40,000, right? That it's not about issues and causes. It's about real human beings. Um, uh, and uh, so, yeah, to this day, that's, you know, she's a constant reminder to us of that it's about the one and she represents the multitudes um, that we work with. So, yeah, so since, since that time till now, our two core programs as an organization are survivor care. We care for children who have been trafficked and exploited, and then a prevention program, which looks like a prevention education curriculum that's being utilized in schools, in child welfare agencies, within juvenile justice agencies. And since 2002, when we started, we've been able to reach um, a little over 67,000 kids on four continents um, through survivor care and prevention programs. So something that started out with literally an encounter that transformed us. You don't walk away from something like that and not engage on some meaningful level. Um, and we've been able to uh, create this thing that's making a difference. It's amazing impact to, to respond to that. You know, it, it, 
Because that could just as easily just crush your soul at that point, right? But but to turn around and and um, and drive this organization to have that type of impact is is huge. Um, you know, I'm curious as you've as you've gone through all these years, you know, what have you learned? What have you faced rallying your team around it? You know, I, you know, in the business world, a lot of the challenge is getting people to buy into the mission. My assumption is that that. I would imagine it's fairly easy for people to get bought into the mission. I don't know if, if that's correct, but what challenges do you face kind of bringing, bringing them along and keeping them on target? I think, I think we are so um, fortunate that the people that work at Love 146, I mean, I'm inspired every day by my colleagues and the people that I get to, the great privilege of, of working with because of this dedication, this level of dedication, this level of passion of wanting to make a difference is incredibly um, inspiring. But I think, a, I think a big piece, and I think this applies to almost any kind of work, especially when it comes to human rights issues, is this thing that we call steady perseverance, another one of our values as mm. an organization. My mom used to refer to it as stick to it of this. I, I <laughs> thought that she had made that word up, but you can actually find that word in the dictionary. So, um, but that, that perseverance piece, you know, I, I had sort of a, a, a uh, this crisis of thinking some years years ago when we had uh, there was a particular uh, girl who had gone through one of our programs she was doing extraordinarily well um, she actually ended up telling her story because she wanted to after she became an adult she wanted to tell her story publicly uh, to uh, to um, uh, inspire other people to get involved and all of that and then we had gotten this news on this particular day that she was back in an at risk situation and, and it was like back in a vulnerable situation that feeling of like two steps forward, three steps back. And we were really impacted by this. And I was talking to one of my colleagues and just wrestling with, what do we do now about this? How can we come alongside of her again and support her? Um, you know, and what does that look like? And, and, and what do we do about even like her story has been told publicly? What does that look like? And, and, um, and I remember my, this, this colleague of mine, she looks at me, she goes, Rob, she, you know, because here's, here's the deal in being completely transparent as a charity, as a nonprofit organization, there is this unspoken pressure that we carry to feel like we have to tell only the success stories, the stories of victories, triumphs and successes mm. and, and, and stories with fairy tale endings, because that's what donors will support. That's what people want to get behind. Everybody loves that kind of story. And, and so there's this pressure and she looks at me and she says, Rob, maybe our story as an organization is not just the story of victories, triumphs, successes, and fairy tale endings. Maybe our story is actually the story of never giving up. Maybe our story is the story of perseverance. And George, it was like somebody hit me with a two by four of truth, right? Of just like, oh my gosh, that is oh, it. And 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 the reality is, is none of us really have our whole story looking like fairy tale ending, right? I think about my own life. Why would it be any different than with the children that we get the great privilege of journeying with, right? We, we all have stories of, yeah, we have some, some successes, but we have a lot of failures. Um, you know, the human experience, right? Exactly. And it goes back to that human first thing, right? That this is about human beings. And so the complexity of just being human is going to involve all of that, the victories and the absolute failures. That's two steps forward, the three steps back. And we need to tell the true story, the, the human story when it comes to um, the work that we do. And so the perseverance, that steady perseverance, that keep going thing, again, it's another thing that we're learning from the kids that we work with. And, and, and maybe I'm late to the game, but it was only a few years ago that I actually, for the first time, saw the 
word severe in the word perseverance. And I don't know how I've, I've mm. missed that, but I'm like, of course, that completely makes sense, right? You never hear somebody that is doing great say, I'm really persevering, right? It's always when you're <laughs> in the when you're in the trenches, man, when things are, when you're back against the wall and that perseverance thing of, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to keep going. And, um, and so fortunately, I get to work with people that work constantly with each other. Let's keep going, let's keep going. And I see that happening in children who are daily, aggressively taking their lives and their childhoods back and persevering. And so there's that inspiration around us all the time. And so that happens within the context of our team and as our organization all the time. It's really, it's a powerful thing to to be a part of, a really powerful thing to witness. Yeah. Yeah. It even gets messy, even in, in the recovery side of things. Right. And, and, uh, you know, I remember, I remember this conversation pretty clearly when we first came up with the human first thing, there was a few people, the feedback was, but doesn't that mean that you're flawed, you know, and doesn't that, and so are you now like marketing yourselves as a flawed organization? And uh, it took, it took us a while to get over that as well, as well. Cause you know, especially in consulting, you're, you're supposed to come with all the answers and, you know, and you're, you know, you're doing nothing but solving problems. But, um, I find that the most rewarding times are when, you know, I say that I don't know, or that we're, you know, you build those relationships, just getting through something that's a complete and utter mess, but it's, it's how you do it too. It's like, it's like how you persevere. Cause I guess there's, there's probably different, different styles of how you could persevere. And, um, and I think that that, that is really critical too, is, is, and that's probably where values come, right? The, the values are what's going to drive you during that, that time of perseverance and, and keep you um, on the right track. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. So let's talk about being action oriented. Then uh, I find that most organizations, not even of businesses, just people, they get stuck just with inaction, right? Yeah, everything from deciding what restaurant a group of people want to go to, to buying a software platform, to whatever. And, and you're addressing a problem where there's action is so important. How do you stay action-oriented? And then let's, then let's talk a little bit about how we can get people involved and action-oriented with Love 146. Sure. I, I often tell a story of an experience I had when I was in high school. And, and um, that was a very, very long time ago. But I remember very specifically, we were leaving um, uh, the school parking lot. I was on the bus and we were heading home and the, and the bus was going through the school parking lot. And then somebody on the bus yells, fight, fight. And we look out the window and there was this crazy fight happening in um, the parking lot. And it was like 15 people on one kid and they were pounding the life out of this kid. The bus, you know, it, it, is there. And we all kind of run to the side of the bus, almost tipping the bus over to get up a, a, a window seat to watch the fight happening in the parking lot. I don't know what this kid did, but he upset a lot of people. And it was, it was insane. I mean, they were, they were stomping on this kid. I mean, they were, they were, really beating the life out of this kid. And, and we're all on the bus looking out the windows and we're just like, oh, oh man, just watching this thing taking place, right? Until one kid on the bus, he was on the baseball team and I remember this because he started yelling at the bus driver, stop the bus, stop the bus. And this kid runs back to his duffel bag and he pulls a baseball bat out of his duffel bag and he goes running down the aisle of the bus. And I'll never forget this scene as he barrels off of the bus. And this kid was not some big kid or anything like that, right? But he mm -hmm. had a baseball bat and he goes off the bus with the baseball bat and he literally risks his own life and he just throws himself into this angry mob of people and he swings 
swinging this baseball bat and he's crying, screaming, leave him alone, leave him alone. He's just one kid. He's just one kid. And he disperses this crowd of people, right? And I will never forget the feeling that I had in that moment as I discovered what I was, right? That Mm. man, I'm just an observer. I'm looking at, I'm I'm staying on the safety of the bus, looking out the windows on a gross injustice happening, right? (laughs) Uh, And and, and never thinking about engaging. And probably for the classic reasons, I don't remember what my thinking was in that moment, but was it the classic reason that we all use oftentimes? Well, what can one person do, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, against something like this, you know, or the fear of my own safety, man, I'm going to get killed if I try to get involved here or whatever. And, And so I just remember that I felt sick to my stomach at that thought that only one kid on this bus had the courage to say, I'm going to engage. Um, And it may cost me and it may not solve anything, but I'm going to do something about it. And that sort of planted this this seed, I guess, in, um, in me in that moment of determining, I never want to feel like this again. I, you know, and, and, I think it's uh, there was a Jewish historian um, named Yehuda Bauer, and he made a statement concerning the Holocaust. And he said this, he says, I think there should be three new commandments added to the existing 10. And that first commandment should be thou shalt not be a victim. And then secondly, mm. thou shalt not be a perpetrator. And then he said, thirdly, the most important of all is thou shalt never, ever be a bystander. And so, um, yeah, so I think as far as the thing that pushes us is that, is that refusal to be a bystander, that I'm going to engage in some meaningful way and make a difference, hopefully, by, by what that action looks like. That's great. You know, as we're, as we're coming towards the end here, I wonder if it would, it would if you'd be, um, if you could share a survivor story, maybe that's a good way to, as we get towards the tail end of this. Yeah. I mean, we, there's so many, right? There's so many, um, Stories. I guess probably one of the most recent things that um, I think, uh, yeah, that I think was impacting for me because it's sort of like it comes back to that human first thing, right? Uh, uh, because, because of the tension that existed in the moment. So um, at one of our safe homes in the Philippines, it's called the Round Home. We have a lot of the kids are, are really young there. And um, a part of the safe home property, we have a farm, a working farm, and it provides food um, for uh, the safe home for the staff and for the children and all of that and everything. And on the farm, we have we have there there are animals there as well. And and um, uh, we had uh, just recently there are some goats that we had that had baby goats. And I don't know if you've ever seen like baby goats. But if you go to YouTube and you just put in the search bar, baby goats, there are literally millions of videos of baby goats (laughs) just because they are hilarious. They're absolutely hysterical to watch just the way they sort of boing straight up and down and everything on top of each other on top of rocks. And they're just they're hilarious, right? And so we get to the safe home. And as we arrive, one of the younger girls, she's she was five, she comes running up to me and she wants to show me the new baby goats that are on the farm, right? So she grabs me by the hand and we go running down to the farm area where the baby goats were and we get there and she's just laughing hysterically, right? At at these baby goats, the way a child should be laughing at baby goats, right? And her laughter, not just the scene of the goats. Yes, that was funny, but her laughter was contagious, George. And I, I Mm. find myself just laughing with her. We're laughing until I start paying attention to the size of the hand that's holding mine. 
And it was this moment of realization, the idea that I'm holding the hand of a five-year-old child in a place called a safe home. And the reason for that is absolutely horrific. And there was that dark aspect of like, this is crazy that a thing called a safe home for children who've been exploited and trafficked and traumatized should even have to exist in the world. There was that. But then there was the sound of children's laughter in the midst of pain and trauma and all of that. And it was this mix of this crazy world, the way childhood is supposed to be and the way it should never have been. And so we, we, for a while, I tried to get rid of just the, the dark side of that stuff. And, and yet it's the reality is, is that those, those things are mixed together when it comes to, um, to human beings and everything. And so, yeah, so laughter happens. We, we get to see, um, uh, children again, taking their lives back and, and there are, there's stories after stories. And again, not every story has a fairy tale ending. Not every story is just full of that victory type thing. We, it's a struggle. It's a hard, hard struggle. It's a lifelong journey. Um, but we get to be a part of that as well. So, yeah. Yeah, it's that innocence and purity that makes it that much harder to comprehend, you know, why anyone would harm harm them. Um, it's so tough. So, how can people get involved? I know you've got you've got a, a, a an event coming up this next in June. Um, so, depending on when people are listening, in June of twenty twenty two. Let's talk about that, but let's also talk about in general. You know, if people are listening after. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of resources available on our website, love one forty six dot org. You go there. There's all sorts of ways that you can be involved. Obviously, um, you know, we have our, our monthly partners that partner with us financially. We have corporations and companies that have come on board um, and uh, and support the organization. Uh, we do have um, an event coming up. It's a 30-day event, actually, in June called Tread on Trafficking, where, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been sitting in this chair for two freaking years um, mm-hmm. in, in my house, right, and, you know, due to the pandemic and and, and all of that. And, and, and there's also the natural, like, spring, where you just want to get outside and so we have this thing that we do called tread on trafficking, where people can take that natural sort of instinct right now, wanting to get out there and do something active, whether it's running or walking or biking or swimming or kayaking or painting or writing, whatever you want to do. Or, you know, we have people that that engage just by, hey, I'm going to drink a two gallons of water a day or whatever effort, some sort of physical um, effort and attach it to um, uh, raising funds for, um, uh, for our work uh, in, in protecting children. And so, um, yeah, so trend on trafficking kicks off on June 1st. We have companies that have engaged their employees, you know, um, as part of their social, you know, corporate responsibility stuff. Uh, They have their entire, you know, uh, employee um, staff treading individually. Uh, We have some, companies that compete against each other, you know, uh, you know, Hey, we're going to see how much we can, we can raise. And it's, it's a great way to get people involved in really fun and practical ways. We've even had kids in our care, the safe homes that have participated in tread on trafficking, mm. um, as well and doing their own, uh, doing their own efforts. So that's a, if you go to the website, the, the tread on trafficking information is on there. It's love 146.org. And I think it's slash tread dash 
on dash trafficking and all the information is on there. Um, uh, Intevity is, is, uh, is a corporate sponsor um, and has been in the past, which we deeply appreciate. Again, I love the synergy and the connection that we have on keeping human beings first and, and caring about human beings, right? And so we're, we're deeply appreciative to, at the level that people come to the table and say, man, I care. I want to do something. And these are practical ways that people can be about um, working alongside of us. Yeah, well, in the spirit of defiant hope, you know, rather than me asking listeners to, to do something here, I'd say just do it, do something and make at least two other people do something here, because otherwise you're just going to be a bystander and a, an observer. Right. And that that's not going to help anyone. I, I love what Anne Lamott, one of my favorite uh, writers, Anne Lamott, she says, and she says, I did the, the single most important thing that one can do to save the world. I got off my butt. And the tread on trafficking piece is a great way to get off your butt and actually do something that is going to be super meaningful um, to children um, and, and a practical way to engage. So, yeah, thanks, man. That's great. Well, thanks for being here, Rob, and thanks for your organization. And over the years th that we've been involved, I've I've seen so many fantastic survivor stories, and and it does it does instill me with hope. And uh, and I'm with you too. Is you know you're not going to get to the moon unless you say you're going to get to the moon. And and so you know I think that it's very it's very grounded to say that that we're going to end this. So thanks, Rob. Thanks for everything. Thank you, man. Thanks again for caring. Technology should serve vision, not set it. At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at www.intevity.com. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, We'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.